Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rec Room Radio. Today, we have a guest on, Robinson Caruso, his fan favorite. We're going to be covering currently three books for today, the first one being The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. Second book is going to be The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. And the final book is going to be Cultural Revolution by Christopher Rufo. With me, Robinson will be discussing the details of these books and how they affect the academia system and the modern societal landscape we are in today in the United States, and more. We would also be briefly touching on other novels that aren't included in this list, and I'm glad to have him on the show. Robinson, you care to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I go by Robinson Crusoe online, and I've been interested in politics, economics, philosophy, and religion for quite some time, and you know, given the current political climate and the issues and problems with modern education, this is certainly a subject that many people will want to get educated about, especially if you're a parent and, you know, you have kids and whatnot. You want to make sure that your kids are getting the right kind of education because there certainly is a specific kind of education that we all should have. And we're all ordered to at the end of the day. All right. And thank you very much for being here as well. So for our first book. The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. Would you care to give a brief overview of this novel for those who may not be familiar with it? And what motivated you to read this book? And what were your initial impressions? So to start off with the motivation and the impressions, um, you know, in the, the, the 20th century was a pretty unique time for the West in particular. We saw the rise of socialism, fascism, um, a dramatic change in how we educate students and whatnot. You saw the the left and the right pretty much go in insanely different directions. And given what's going on in the 21st century as of right now, you kind of wonder what happened, you know, in particular, looking at how we, you know, operated in the 19th century in in the West in comparison to the 20th. And there were only a few people in particular that were really trying to figure out what was going on at this time. And at the center of it's ultimately education. So here you have this guy, Alan Bloom. He's mainly well known. He's mainly known because of the fact that he wrote the best English translation for Plato's Republic. And he wrote this book called, you know, The Closing of the American Mind. And when you're looking at the title itself, you know, it kind of captures you and kind of makes you want to read the book. And, you know, what is the American mind? And, you know, ultimately, how did it get closed? And the basically his the, the main point is that we went from being a society where we were open to the truth and ultimately went to a society that decided to reject that. And we ended up getting dumber in particular when you're looking at, you know, college students that graduate, whether it's undergrad or they just finished getting their master's or people that had it, you know, decided to go through and get a PhD. These people that are quote unquote intellectuals, they're nowhere near as smart as the intellectuals we have of the past. Despite what you want to say about someone who was left-wing in the 20th century or someone of the past, like, let's just say someone like Hegel, um, that, you know, when you go back and read anything from him, you'll think to yourself, okay, like, you don't really like anything this guy has to say, but he's a brilliant man. And if you're looking at, for example, on the right, even someone like Bill Buckley in particular, he was very intelligent. And when someone like Bill Buckley would, you know, have interviews on TV uh, for things such as, you know, uh, the firing line or when we look at what Crossfire used to be on TV, it just seemed like 
Americans were a lot smarter back then. They had higher IQs. They were able to pay attention to more complex political subjects. And it's just lost as of right now. Just all you have to do is just turn on Fox News as of right now or CNN or MSNBC. And it's just like, what are they feeding us at the end of the day? Even some of the um, talk show hosts such as Tucker Carlson overall, it does seem to some extent that the material that we're getting from these people, it's just dumbed down. It's watered down. And um, Alan Bloom is getting to the reason for why this is occurring in the closing of the American mind. All right. and. My question for you then would be, do you think that's almost, in a sense, paradoxical where we're in a time and age where we have internet access at our fingertips, we could find anything we want, and we have, you could argue, the most people going to colleges and university, yet we're getting dumber. How would Alan Bloom square this, where we're now living in a society where people are, you know, getting intellectually dumber, but, like, you know, back then, less people went to these universities, and they were more intelligent? Well, the, there are a number of reasons for why that would occur. And um, during the time when Bloom wrote this book, it, it certainly wasn't he I don't think he predicted that we would become this dumb. And I don't think he could predict the rise of us just getting information online. And while we have access to all of these texts nowadays, you would think that we would get smarter, but we're actually getting dumber with the the free flow of information. But the, the way that this occurred, which is really what Alan Bloom is talking about is the fact that we went from a society that focused on you know what the truth is what's the good what's beautiful what is just to ultimately being a society where everything is just colloquial speech where we are now saying things like well what is your opinion on this and you know for all of us we went through k through 12 education some of us went to college and whatnot we can remember in the class in our classrooms where we were never really talking about you know what the intention of the the text was whatever we were reading or whether or not this author or this writer or this thinker philosopher whoever got this actually right it was always just what is your opinion so that implies some form of subjectivism some form of relativism that exists and when we're thinking about education in particular especially higher education there's going to be some um you know ethical component there because these are the people that are supposed to be the future movers or the educators of the world. You know, edu higher education is, you know, a central institution in society. And traditionally speaking, the, you know, in the West, the church was at the center of our civilization. And the, the earliest churches ultimately, I mean, not the earliest churches, excuse me. I mean, the, the church itself started the process of creating um you know, the first institutions that are still some of the oldest institutions today. And with that came the moral component. They, the, the church knew that we have to educate people to make them wise, make them yearn for knowledge, because that was what we were ordered to. But all of this fades. And it, from Bloom's perspective, uh, the reason why things became paradoxical is because we decided to ask ourselves questions in the past mainly because of our influence from the Enlightenment, to then rejecting anything that could be viewed as objective from anyone with common sense. Thank you. And it's interesting you mentioned that because there are a lot of old universities, especially in America, where they say that it is, you know, a quote-unquote Catholic or Christian university, but only as far as in name alone, where it makes you ask the question like, you know, these used to be almost pillars of intellect in the time, but now it's almost fallen of grace. What did 
in that regard, would you say could be a solution to get it back? Or what does Bloom propose for us to get this back? Well, well, the issue with the, the main issue with Bloom is that, and I don't really know if this should be viewed as a critique, mainly because he was just telling us what was happening with the closing of the mind, which I'll discuss a little bit more in detail, like right after I answer this. But I do think like one of the easiest solutions is just simply to have Catholic institutions that are trying to revive what we lost earlier early on you know um if, you know both of us know that during the 20th century Thomism was kind of revived and the church certainly tried to make this a priority so that um what we knew in the past was something that was still maintained and um defended in the present by by catholics or people that are interested in classical thought overall as a whole but you don't see that at some of these catholic universities and you know to make it to expand, even when you're looking at, for example, Catholic high schools or Catholic schools that teach K through 12 education, the classical way of, of approaching education is something that has died. And you can only see this at some uh, private institutions today. Now, the issue there is sometimes at these private colleges, they're very expensive and they don't have the same reputation as a Harvard or a Yale or a Stanford. But we have to be willing to, you know, go to these schools if we want a legitimate education. But, you know, at the same time, we can also just simply use the Internet. Um, there, are there are tons of books that, you know, were written in the past, whether it's Plato's Republic, Aristotle's Metaphysics, or even, um, you know, books that are just the introduction to the scholastics and whatnot. Or when we're looking at, you know, older political texts or older, you know, texts on economics and whatnot, ethics. They're you know, readily available and they're pretty cheap, but we just don't take the time and the effort. So telling people that we should do this should dramatic should be the priority. But to to get to what Bloom is really trying to do with this is that the the central point of the closing of the mind is ultimately that the Enlightenment did more harm than good. Um, the telios of the Enlightenment was to, of course, enlighten, but it ended up leading to people just casting doubt on the traditional revelations that we got from our ancestors, that we can't just trust tradition. We can't just assume these things to be true. We can't just accept it. Why don't we criticize certain things? And the West, in particular Americans in the past, we had a prejudice for our ancestors where we knew what they were saying was true. That was the view of many of the people during the 60s in particular that were trying to restructure education to advance whatever cause they had. So they told us to doubt the truth ultimately, but to really just doubt our ancestors because there is no definitive truth. And that's what causes you to become open-minded. But you mentioned it earlier how it does seem like we're really living in a paradoxical world where you know, even how we're approaching education um, seems like a contradiction. What really happened is that we ultimately closed our minds and we were unwilling to accept the truth. We were unwilling to take into consideration certain ideologies or um, the reality of this world. And that allowed for the secularization of education that allowed for different forms of ethics to, you know, permeate the minds of people that went to college that led to um, the rise of the left, because when you're looking at the 19th century in particular, this country wasn't left-wing by any means. If at best you could find someone who, if they, for example, were anti the gold standard, they may be pro silver standard or by metal standard. But if you're looking at that in comparison today, that person would be viewed as a reactionary. So we were staunchly a very 
conservative, very right-wing country. But then when we, when we, when the left ended up in power um, over education, the shift became clear, and ultimately, that is what led to us having an actual closed mind. And we weren't open to the truth. We weren't open to any position that was um, synonymous with what we valued in the past. I like how you mentioned that, too, because you could see in the dialogues of Plato as well, where Plato and Socrates, when they write, they're mainly discussing their predominant antagonist, if you will, being the sophist. And what their critiques of sophism was, or, sorry, sophism, is that these people are not here to search for a truth or logos. They're here for a moral relativism, as in they don't have any firm grasp or grounding. It's just kind of bending it to, quote unquote, win arguments or discussion. And I agree with you in the sense where you see a lot of that dies where people almost throw away or put on like, you know, ideologies like it's a jacket or it's a coat being like, OK, I like this one now because I can win more arguments and less of I like this because, you know, it brings me closer to the logos or the truth. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, in a lot of ways, we're we're pretty much disordered and we're not we're not ordered towards the truth anymore. And, you know, in the past, there was a. For the most part, we seem to be driven by the same views on everything, where something that was beautiful was quite similar to something that was true, which was quite similar to something that was just moral, and it was ordered in a proper in a in a um in the proper way. And ultimately, you know, we we had some kind of purpose that existed in the past. So when you're looking at education, um, the classical way of looking at things. Which, by the way, um, in the past, like we still viewed it from like we still would consider it something that was a a liberal way, liberal form of education. But it was a lot different than what people would consider the modern liberal arts. But that ordering was something that was supposed to be very harmonious, was supposed to be very peaceful. And it sort of soothed us in the right way, which is why society functioned and it seemed more united in the past. But, you know, the the. Another interesting thing about this book in particular is, and this was something that was actually quite controversial, is that Alan Bloom seems to suggest that part of the reason as to why our minds were closed and why we got dumber is because of other things that we valued in society at that time. And, you know, the both of us were avid fans of music and we're both big time fans of jazz. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of blues in particular. I'm not sure if you are, but other classical forms of music in particular, these things sound really good. Um, you know, you can do you can do pretty much anything that you want with jazz. You can listen to it while you're studying. You can listen to it while you're doing chores. You can listen to it while, you know, maybe you're watching TV or doing something else in particular. Same thing with blues. But during the 60s, that was when rock and roll really exploded in the United States. And when you're seeing where rock and roll went from the 60s to the 90s, society was also getting dumber at this time. And the music itself seemed to be more immoral. Bloom sort of implies that rock and roll itself was bad for society and it made us dumber and this is controversial just simply because while many of us are actually big fans of the classical way of looking at education you know many of us are very right-wing very conservative maybe reactionary a lot of us are still also fans of um, a lot of rock and roll whether it's grunge music whether it's punk whether it's gothic rock whether it's um you know just the old school classic rock or maybe it's indie but he didn't find this to be good because he felt as if rock and roll was something that was um, chaotic. It was disordered. It was destructive. It was anarchic. It was something that didn't 
order you in the proper way. And I think the reason, I mean, the second reason as to why this would be problematic is because, well, you know, the other genres exist as well, such as, you know, R&B expanded, hip hop and whatnot. At what point do you say that this is where music stops being harmonious and drives us towards peace and orders us the right way? And it um, soothes the senses to to the point where it becomes anarchic and destructive. I like how you mentioned that because I could agree where, especially for classical music, there's entire schools dedicated to musical theory. And musical theory would honestly be what got me into jazz because in high school I was in jazz band and that's something that fascinated me a lot, thinking like the complexity behind this. And in both jazz and classical and a lot of forms of instrumental, you don't really see these aspects in, let's say, modern rap or other genres, like you said, rock and roll. And to a sense, it gets frustrating because people nowadays like to say, well, you have your music taste, I have mine, all music is equal. I don't agree with that. Like, to call the works of, like, you know, Handel and compare that to let's say you know dubstep like you know or guys like that it's just insulting to me because of how much like passion and energy is put into these classical pieces that have stood the test of time honestly and lasted for hundreds of years and surely hundreds of years more and that's an issue where i also see i know bloom touches this as well with like the moral relativism where we're going into a society of like you know more liberalism more moral relativism all these concepts like that and that frustrates me in a sense where, no, we used to agree that there was one. Like, you know, you could say there's objectively, this is good music and this is bad music. People are almost, dare I say it, afraid to say that now because in liberalism, I always say this, you could argue and debate all day long, but you can't put action into this. At the end of the day, liberalism says everyone's opinion is just that, their opinion, which is one of my major critiques of it that I feel was lost, especially post-Enlightenment era. But a question I have for you in regards to this, I know that Bloom talks directly about the crisis in liberal education, and he also talks about, you know, like I said earlier, relativism. We touched on a lot of this, but to what extent do you think his concerns about the state of education in the 1980s are still relevant today? Um, they're, they're more so relevant now than ever before, mainly because we are... we. Be- we believe in subjectivism now more than ever before, at least to some extent. But I think the the interesting thing about this is it goes back to the paradox that we see in education today, where you had these people where they pretty much subscribe to the the central purpose of the Enlightenment, and it was supposed to you know enlighten our minds, and we we question everything, and at the end of the day, we can just utilize pure reason to come to the, the truth or come to conclusions regardless of how impi- uh, regardless of how opinion opinionated those conclusions are and th- the reason why this is so odd is because when you're looking at it in modern times in particular it does seem as if the left has created a new objective form of education and if you're someone that doesn't adhere to that which is definitely um, something that a lot more people are writing about in particular. Uh, Christopher Caldwell, I mean, not Christopher Caldwell, Rufo um, is someone who you know talks about this in the third book, which is what we're going to address. Then you're someone that's, you're not interested in the truth now. So they went from trying to question the truth and to question, to tr- 
question tradition to embracing a new tradition that was built by them. And now we have to accept it. So what he was talking about in um, the, the crisis of education during the mid to late 20th century is certainly more of a pressing issue now than ever before. And you're seeing this, like, even if you're someone who you doubt this, all you have to do is take into consideration how many people feel on college campuses, how many parents feel about their, their kids going to college nowadays, and how many people in academia in particular feel about these things. You can find someone that's very intelligent, where they're teaching at some institution, maybe it's not Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, or some of these other, you know, East Coast private schools, but they're teaching at some Southern school or some school in the Midwest that's lesser known. They talk to you about the frustration about education um, and how the the new people that are in charge of education and how they're they're in charge of liberating the minds of people and making us smarter are, you know, ruining people ultimately, you know, like I said before, if you go back and you look at um, intellectuals during the early part of the 20th century and you just compare them to intellectuals on TV today, or what many people would describe as public intellectuals, not even people who have PhDs or, you know, are fluent in multiple languages, you'll see that, you know, now we're still getting stupider and stupider and stupider. And when you're looking at Zoomers nowadays, like some of them, they they struggle with basic concepts that would have been foreign for people to um, struggle with in the past if they graduated high school or college. Um, you know, an example of this is, um, I can't remember the professor's name, but she taught at Harvard. And she spoke about how if someone was um, in college, let's just say in the 60s in particular, and they were deciding to pursue um, the liberal arts, regardless of what it is, whether it's philosophy, something in the humanities, political science, et cetera. She expected them, or a professor back then would have expected by at least the 10th grade for them to have read The Genealogy of Morals by Nisha. But how many people right now um, are in the 10th grade and have read something like that, or even let alone know who Nisha is and anything that he's written, you know, unless if you're on Twitter, or you're someone who, you know, maybe you went to a very good school. You don't know who this person is. I rarely know people my age or people younger than me that are doing things like that. So it's, it's a real issue as of right now. And like I said before, um, higher education is at the center of, of our civilization. It's at the center of our society. And if those institutions aren't educating people the proper way, well, you know, we're pretty much screwed. All right. Thank you. And one more thing I want to touch on with in regards to the closing of the American mind is two questions. One is, in your view, how was how has this book influenced discussion about education, culture and intellectual life today since its publication? So that's my first question. My second is in regards to this novel, are there any particular ideas or arguments from the book that you find especially impactful or thought provoking? Um, well, I, I would say that I think that this book was one of the precursors to many of the books that came out later on, one of which we're going to talk about later. Um, Richard Hania, I haven't read his book, but he also has a book about how um, we've pretty much wokeified everything in particular. And then when you're looking at, you know, even some intellectuals today that would be considered moderate, they're still now, you know, they're now writing articles or essays or they're talking about how you're not really getting educated if you go to college. And they're really frustrated with the students they have. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't really it does not seem as if these students really care about education, 
education. They care about advancing their own ideas and whatnot. Um, so I think that that's the biggest issue um, that would that he's really hitting at. Um, what was your second question again? I forgot it. No, it's all good. My second question was, are there particular ideas or arguments from the book that you find especially impactful or thought-provoking? Um, I would say that the the main thing in particular is the fact that when we close our minds to how we're getting educated, we're ultimately becoming barbarians. And when we have a, a situation when we're actually receiving the proper education, we end up becoming more civil. Um, it, Like I said before, it soothes our soul. It orders our soul in a proper way. And I, I definitely think that while Bloom isn't really supposed to give us solutions to, you know, much of what we see, that's the role for, I would say, um, you know, theorists overall as a whole. It just seems like Bloom was just a decorated writer who just valued education. Um, but ultimately, the, 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 he's mainly trying to tell us, like, why education is so important. And it makes us civil. And there is a proper way. So. This is one of the books that I would say that at the end of the day, if you're someone who's really interested in the classics, you will really find very interesting. And that's the main thing there. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That is The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. He is, I would say, definitely would be a descriptive and less of a prescriptive writer, as Robinson said. And those are later to come. And speaking on that, we're going to be going all over to our next book now which is The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. And for this book, I'm actually looking forward to it because it's one of the reading recently. I've been recommended numerous times, especially by mutuals of mine like Marcel. Um, in this book, can you provide another brief overview of The Age of Entitlement for those who may not be familiar with it? So what is this book about and what is it different from the prior? Okay, so this book, it's it's not really focused on education, but when you're looking at, for example, um, the significance of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you begin to see how we screwed ourselves in so many ways. And it's it's definitely one of the best books that the right has produced, I would say, in the past 15 years. So the overview of this book in particular is that he's alt he's trying to show us that the United States effectively lives in two worlds, where on the one hand, we have society pre the 1960s, and on the other hand, we have this, this new age society. And ultimately, the 60s was more than just simply trying to liberate African Americans from the, the black codes in the South. It was something that effectively became a way for us to replace the old constitution, one that was dramatically influenced by you know, Edmund Burke, John Locke, and a bunch of other philosophers to one that was radically influenced by the new age bureaucrats that would infect the minds of everyone. And he talks about a lot. He talks about the, um, the role of the women's rights movement, the role of Reagan in particular, and, you know, what was going on during the Reagan era and whether or not he could actually, um, you know, do, do anything about this. Uh, what was the significance of Nixon in relation to all of this? But the main point that should be um, that should be driven home by everyone about this book is how important the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was, because it was bigger than just simply, OK, you can't discriminate as a private business or public. I mean, or you can't discriminate if you are a public servant against African-Americans or black Americans in particular. It became something much more pervasive to the point where um, 
it became the new constitution and nowadays it's governing everyone's lives and we could see this as well almost getting pushed more to seeing like how much you could say the left is squeezing the 1964 civil rights act in the sense of for the supreme court case with the baker who refused to make a cake for a gay couple and i'm curious do you think that also has implications rooted in the civil rights act yeah it absolutely does i mean in general um the the civil rights act of six of 64 in a lot of ways did pretty serious damage to the first amendment while and at the same time i will say that many people would actually find that comment that i just made quite controversial and it was because in general we live in a society where we actually believed in the right to exclude someone from you know private communities or to not associate i mean the first amendment points out that we have the freedom to associate with certain people but the civil rights act of 64 eventually became something where the state could decide you know whether or not this form of disassociation was wrong and harmful so the example that you gave with the baker um was is definitely one of the best examples you could you know give to show the the impact of the civil rights act of 64 um you know in general people usually try to focus on the fact that well as a private business now you just don't have the right to discriminate but it didn't really it really wasn't that wasn't the main issue the main issue was that you have these new age bureaucrats and with the rise of things like affirmative action and um, PC culture, you now had to treat people a lot differently than how a lot differently than how we would have treated them in the past. And in regard to this, to push to have a little bit of pushback for you, you hear commonly people would say the phrase for who are against the Civil Rights Act that if we would have left the markets alone and private businesses do private businesses do best. The ones that did not provide for everyone would eventually close down because they'd be outcompeted by the businesses that are allowing everyone to go there. So let's say a shoe factory, for example, I'm in shoe factory A, you're in shoe factory B. Your shoe factory only caters to white people while mine caters to everyone. And in theory, mine would beat you simply because I have more of a consumer base than you do. What validity do you find in that? And do you have faith that the invisible hand would have solved this issue instead of the Civil Rights Act? I think if we're looking at it from the private sector, if we're worried about discrimination in the private sector, then the market over time would have certainly um, adjusted for that, where you'll have, um, you know, white business owners who are trying to discriminate against blacks, um, basically being punished by their you know, their evil ways and they're not really trying to make the, the profit that they could have if they're pretty much serving everyone. But the issue there is that, you know, in a lot of southern states on two levels, it was quite difficult for um, the market to correct this issue. On one on the one hand, you have locally um, people just discriminating even or bullying others that, you know, for example, would have served a black person. But on the other hand, you actually had laws that prevented a business from serving black people. And that I think is ultimately what hindered um, the, the, the market from doing what it normally would have done, which is correct um, and injustice naturally. But again, uh, I don't necessarily know if this would be a compelling argument to maybe say that we should get rid of what was get rid of the private discrimination that had existed in the South. Um, in Caldwell's book, he never really implies that the civil rights at the 64 was 
uh, so immoral. He just points out that it was something that had unintended consequences. And we either have to live with those consequences or maybe go back and correct some of the things that occurred before. But that's still very difficult. So he's he's very much a proponent of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and acknowledging that there was a serious problem in the South. Although many people who tend to be libertarians or paleoconservatives would certainly disagree with that since the right to discriminate is absolute to most of them. Okay. And in more of a historical perspective then, in what way does Caldwell examine the historical context leading up to the present era of entitlement? Uh, so he doesn't really provide much of a historical context. It's pretty much just assumed that, you know, things were, were bad ultimately. And, but the, the thing that he does, I think in particular is he points out the, the history of, of laws that occurred after, um, the civil rights act of 64 and how it expanded. So note how I mentioned earlier that there, that affirmative action and political correctness were two things that resulted from this that were results of the civil rights act of 64 he has this quote in his book um about both where he's saying that affirmative action and political um correctness were the twin pillars of the second constitution that of the second constitution um which was the post 1964 constitution and that was really those were really the civil rights that people gained at this time and he goes into detail about how for example the Civil Rights Act of 64 started with trying to just um, address issues dealing with African-Americans to then being things where we're going to focus on, you know, women or gays or, you know, the L just the LGBTQ community overall as a whole. You can pretty much expand this to Hispanics. There are many Asians in particular that are trying to benefit from this. And it was because because when you're looking at African-Americans in the South, it was clear that government was preventing many of them from um, advancing in society. All these other groups all of a sudden said to themselves, well, hey, look, we're also being threatened by the the original United States, the, the original culture that existed in this country. So we need to be able to advance as well. So it eventually became something where we're going to provide benefits to all these different groups, along with when it comes to political correctness, um, combating the minor foolishness that you see within the masses, and the Civil Rights Act eventually became something that was going to, you know, treat this problem. But the he does also point out that the original intent was that we were supposed to order our country back towards the colorblindness uh, that was supposed to be the Declaration of Independence, since clearly for a long time we we weren't that. Okay, sounds good. And you touched on that and identity politics, and I was curious if you could elaborate or expand a bit more. How does Caldwell address the role of identity politics in the age of entitlement? And are there specific cultural shifts discussed in the book that you find particularly noteworthy? Such as, I'm not sure if this is in the book, but I know Rothbard talked about a big issue was Jim Crow laws, where you have government stepping in and putting these rules in place instead of letting the free market or the people choose. What's your thoughts on that? So it's interesting you bring up um, Rothbard because... Uh, yeah, it definitely was the state coming in and choosing for people, you know, what we actually had to believe. But the, the, re the real reason why this became an issue is because you had leftists at that time who they basically rewarded themselves by um, being members of the bureaucracy and then expanding the bureaucracy and then force feeding a, a new form of education, like we mentioned before, with academia to the masses 
or people that were going into higher education. And then all of a sudden you have these people who are getting educated, who then want to then become part of the bureaucracy. So the, the issue just continues to manifest because you're rewarding people that, you know, you educate and they decide to submit to the way the system was working at this time. Um, now, as, as for the, the issue with culture in particular, I think the, the main reason why this was a concern is because, like, like I'd mentioned before, in the 19th century, um, we were certainly a country that adhered to capitalism and we adhered to, you know, Jeffersonian values. You know, we were very much more Burkean and Lockean than we are today. In 1929, which I think is really the start of all this, you saw a huge transition in terms of us having certain, certain kinds of elites that I think you and I would both be fans of. And that transition to, you know, new elites with, um, and this, a lot of this really just started to emerge during FDR. So from the the 30s to the 60s, you now have these new leftists that are starting to invade every institution and then force feed everything down to the masses. And it effectively created a new culture. So when we're talking about the cultural problems just overall as a whole, I think we have to take into consideration like the role that you you see with um, changes in who's at the top and, you know, what they're doing just at, at the end of the day. So it's tough for us to, as people say, well, we don't actually like this when the people that are quote unquote more intelligent than all of us are telling us, well, no, this is not what you should believe. And that was really how um, the, that was really what created, I think, the cultural decay. Now Caldwell doesn't really necessarily, he doesn't really talk too, too much about culture just overall as a whole and the importance of culture he's just trying to present like the the historical impact of um the like i said before the civil rights act the women's rights movement and whatnot and um you know what was going on during the reagan era and the the one thing that i think he does point out strongly actually when it comes to reagan during the 80s is that um when we're looking at why so many people are starting to notice notice this right now it was because reagan was sort of the the stop that the stop between the two worlds where he was able to for the older boomers um give them what they wanted while also not really doing enough to piss off the new elites that would be in charge post reagan at the same time you're having a a conservative movement that's pretty much just unwilling to address any of this or or do anything about it if if that makes sense no it does definitely and it touches on as well in the book how he mentions generational dynamics where he explores that there's different generations perceive and engage with such entitlement and i was gonna ask you if you could elaborate a little bit more on that especially because you mentioned you know fdr to reagan and sort of this evolution of like generational views from the boomers to like what we could say now perceived as zoomers where how does it evolve over time in a sense well i mean part of part of the reason is just simply that different generations are to some extent going to have different values than you know generations that precede them or generations that come you know after them and whatnot but another part of it is also just simply when we're dealing with certain i guess economic problems or social problems every generation feels entitled to get something so when you're having a a very um expansive government when you're having a very hands-on government that's telling you we're going to do all these things for you that's that's effectively what creates the entitlement and boomers in general they had certain expectations given the the significance of our country you know we lived in the united states at this time we were the greatest country on earth 
and we were the greatest civilization, the greatest empire, and ultimately we had certain expectations. And many of these expectations were things that they just didn't get at the time. So it was pissing people off. Meanwhile, you have people younger than them and they have these new expectations and it's because they're listening to new people, new intellectuals, and they're telling them these are the, these, these should be your demands. At the same time, you're having different groups in society um, amass power or decide to get more active and involved in the political process. And when you're looking at, for example, the, the benefits that a lot of African-Americans received because of the civil rights movement, you're going to get other groups doing the same thing. And then when you're looking at, for example, Zoomers in particular, or even some millennials, this is just all that we know at this time. We expect, um, you know, handouts. We expect government to be very hands-on. We are, we feel as if we're entitled to a lot of things. We also hate boomers in the past because we feel as if they've squandered, you know, the, the wealth of this country in particular. They're able to get social security benefits, but we won't. They had better access to healthcare. Things were cheaper. So we're demanding all these things. And with, when you're looking at politicians in particular, if you want to get elected, the best way to get elected is to promise something to someone. So there were different generations of intellectuals and politicians promising things to different groups. And that's what creates the generational divide. One group, one generation expects their demands to be received and they're going to criticize the other generation if their demands aren't the same or if they feel as if, you know, we're too entitled because we hadn't we didn't have to deal with the same things that our ancestors did in the past. Okay. I know you mentioned earlier for the previous offer we were discussing that Bloom was more of a descriptive, not prescriptive author in his novel or sorry, book. Would you say for Caldwell, though, it'd be the opposite where he's more prescriptive? What do you think like policy or societal solutions did he recommend to address what he sees as an issue relating to entitlement? And what are some of your opinions with these implications and his proposed solutions. You know, it's it's interesting that you you know you bring this up again because you know one of the issues that I have with a lot of these writers is that I feel as if they they don't want to um, tell us what are the solutions to all the issues that we're dealing with. I don't know if it's because a they they just don't have the solutions themselves, or b it's because they're worried that they're going to be you know attacked or ridiculed by so many people on the left and on the right. So he did. He didn't really have any solutions to this, which which is definitely something that pissed me off. It frustrated me. But he was just sort of telling us that, look, we're we have all these issues and we have all these problems. And if we don't fix it, well, then, you know, what's what's to occur? But I do think to some extent, Bloom and Caldwell are of the same mindset that there's this concept that, you know, many, many people talk about in modern times, which is that we have to get to colorblindness, colorblindness you know, through the law and whatnot. And that's how we fix all these things. But that begs the question, well, then how do we do this? What's going on? And then the second question after that is, do Americans even want this? So again, you know, we're left with, you know, wondering and trying to figure out what's going on. And I mean, not, not trying to figure out what's going on, but how do we fix this? And he doesn't do that. But, you know, luckily the third author, um, you know, he has a few solutions, but I would say that um, if you were to ask me, you know, what are my solutions ultimately? I do think that states in general certainly have to be willing to to take power and say no to the the expansion of the of the civil rights movement because if if we're someone that's we're even looking to strive for color blindness we can't do that with the con- with the civil rights constitution it's just impossible we certainly would have to go back and you know remember the the ideas and the values that our founders had ultimately 
Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because we said earlier of the unintended consequence. And when you're talking about colorblindness, in today's society, it comes with almost like an asterisk mark on it, where it's like colorblindness, but more of rules for thee, but not for me. And a good example for this is how we see in universities like um, Harvard, for example, they have, funny enough, a black-only graduation celebration or black-only zones where you're not allowed to enter unless you're this, you know, racial color. And even worse, when it comes to affirmative action, there's currently an ongoing lawsuit that I believe just finished recently where Asian students were complaining to Harvard due to affirmative action because they were predominantly the ones getting into Harvard. And they noticed like, hey, you guys are artificially deflating our SAT scores to bring in other people who had lower scores than ours and get them in there just to fill a quota or a check check mark, where it's becoming almost a sense of diversity for the sake of diversity alone, as in we're just checking a box or meeting a quota, which I think is very unfortunate, especially in a form of academia. Yeah, definitely. I'm in a lot of ways. That's kind of the only thing that they can really do at this point. Um, mainly, they they basically have to continuously cater to these new groups, or these new groups will try to find someone else to um, advance their own agenda. And I, I think the one thing you're starting to see is that when when kids feel as if they can't get the education that they demand, or kids feel as if um, they're being discriminated against, it's sort of you know, begs the question, well, is discrimination really a bad thing or is it more along the lines of discrimination for um, me, but not for thee? And when you have a situation like that and parents are now all of a sudden becoming angry or frustrated or and academics are starting to point out that, you know, this has just been an objective failure, the, the system begins to crumble and they have to figure out a way to address all of the concerns that, you know, so many people have. And it's it's a lot harder for us to, you know, make this point or sell this point when it comes to things such as academia, because someone can always make the argument that, well, this private school didn't really have to accept you, which is true. I, I am sympathetic to that argument. Harvard doesn't have to accept some of the students that they would be willing to that they would have been willing to accept, you know, 60 years ago, given their scores. But when you're now infected by, you know, what kind of jobs prospects you will have or whether or not you can, you know, you will have um, a certain level of income. That's when people really begin to get frustrated because now you're messing with people's livelihoods. You're messing with people's families and it's difficult for communities to be willing to accept the, the, the new age way of looking at things. Yeah. And I know this is a bit off topic, but that reminds me of a writer, Thomas soul. I'm sure you're familiar with him where one of his critiques to affirmative action where he feels is almost alienates people that it tends to benefit because he put it as when he was younger going to university, let's say a surgeon, he is an African-American, and he said he would have to work twice as hard as everyone else. But because of that, everyone in his field would respect him because they knew he had a lot of other hurdles to hop over than the rest of the people, as in he didn't have, like, you know, his parents going to these universities he had to work and, excuse my language, bust his ass off to get there. While he would argue because of affirmative action, you can see statistically that a lot of these minority groups that are being sent to these colleges that are above their SAT scores or above their academia level, they tend to drop out and be almost a drag to like the curriculum and the courses where the classrooms they're in. 
and they almost get pushed back and alienated because people feel like, okay, you just got here because of a handout, which is unfortunate, but that's why Soul, for example, would argue it's better to go to, let's say, a middle or average road academia or university. And if you could prove your worth there, as in you work, you get good grades, let's say you make the dean's list, you could eventually go to these better colleges. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, or would you say that's pretty solid in line? Yeah, that's pretty solid in line. And, um, you know, Seoul's really good at addressing civil rights um, legislation, and he's really good at addressing intellectuals and race and whatnot. But, you know, that argument was always really strong, and I don't think the other side really has a compelling case against it. But there are a couple of other things that I think we have to impact. I mean, impact whenever we're, or unpack when we're talking about this, which is that even when we're talking about many of these minorities that are um, going to these um, well-known institutions, a lot of them weren't actually ever discriminated against. Um, in the case of Black Americans in particular, a lot of the beneficiaries are people that weren't descendants of you know American slaves. A lot of them come from Nigeria, the Congo, Ghana, wherever. And it sort of begs the question of, are you just simply looking to um, uh, uh, hire uh, you know, a Black person, or are you actually trying to address the injustice that occurred for um, African Americans overall as a whole? But another issue, I think, in particular, that um, which is something that I don't necessarily think Seoul talks about too much, but a lot of other a lot of other intellectuals talk about, is the fact that maybe these people just don't care, because at the end of the day, you you definitely need minorities that are in power in order to tell minorities, well, we have your back at the end of the day, and. Um, with this comes the the view or the belief that no matter what happens, um, you're always going to get a benefit from them. Okay. Thank you for that. It was actually pretty insightful. And my final question in regards to The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell would be, do you have any personal reflections you'd like to share? How has your reading of The Age of Entitlement influenced your own understanding of contemporary American society? And are there any specific ideas or insights the book posed to you that you found particularly thought-provoking? Yeah, like I said before, I, th I certainly think it's one of the best um, books that come from the conservative movement over the past 15 years in particular. Um, I think the main insight that I, I got from this, which I think many of us were able to conclude on our own, but Caldwell put so eloquently, was the fact that we kind of live under two constitutions now. So when you're having the civil rights regime just overall as a whole and you're trying to enforce the ancient regime's way and culture, it's impossible to do so because there's so many people alive today that um, they live under the new constitution and they have no respect or understanding of how things worked and operated in the past and things just continuously get worse. Add, to, add that to the fact that for 100 years, the conservative movement's pretty much done nothing to stop the left and in many ways have absorbed much of what the left believes to the point where nowadays you can even see, for example, the, the new right engaging in political correctness and engaging in affirmative action. It really makes it very difficult for us to, um, you know, do anything about it. So, you know, I, I would say that that was his biggest insight. There was something else that you had, I think, brought up in that question. Um, which uh, could you re remind me of again? Because I wanted to really talk about the insight, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, my well, my first question in regards to that was, how has your reading of The Age of Entitlement influenced your own understanding of contemporary American society? And the second question was, are there any specific ideas or insights in the book you found thought-provoking? And you answered that with the, there's two, you know, under constitutions. But 
along with the first, how would you say this book has influ- influenced, you know, your view of contemporary American society? Um, it, it influenced it mainly because I started thinking about laws and how um, politic works from different lenses. You know, traditionally, you know, the both of us, we, we come from a pretty libertarian background. So we're always viewing things from an economic perspective of the role of natural rights and whatnot. So traditionally, when it comes to the Civil Rights Act of 64, I was thinking, well, government just shouldn't be able to force business transactions. So if, you know, I'm a, if I'm a, a white person who just wants to discriminate against a black person and I'm in a private business, there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, there's still some truth to that, but that's honestly the the weakest case against the Civil Rights Act of 64. The main issue is that, you know, like I said before, it created this new culture, this new identity. And, you know, if you take into consideration, for example, how the Patriot Act was used against um, Islamic terrorists and um, it helped to create the rise of the surveillance state. And now you take into consideration how the left is able to spy on Christians, spy on, you know, Catholics that attend TLM, a traditional Latin mass, or to spy on a president, to spy on politicians, while at the same time talking about how, you know, many of these different groups are the largest proponents of fascism or domestic terrorism, you know, it now presents a new lens because, you know, you could go back and look at the Patriot Act and just simply say it was unconstitutional. It gave the executive branch too much power. But then when you're applying it to now, well, no, the Patriot Act basically gave rise to a new way of looking at terrorism and also a new surveillance state in which we could use this, um, we could weaponize, um, you know, actual foreign terrorism and use it against our enemies domestically. Uh, You know, the insight from the Civil Rights Act made me start thinking about things like that in particular. And even just simply, you know, Ronald Reagan, um, again, going back to libertarian arguments in particular, when you're looking at it, it's just always, well, he just increased the size of the government and he potentially, you know, he brought us nearly on the brink of a war with the Soviet Union. And, you know, he raised taxes, even though in some instances he cut taxes. Yeah, all of that stuff is is perfect to criticize him for. But the the main reason as to why the, the Reagan revolution failed um, outside of the the argument that Pat Buchanan usually gives, which is that, you know, um, neoconservatives basically just took over is just simply that Reagan was actually a moderate in the sense of that he moderated the frustrations between two different generations that lived in two different worlds. And if you had someone to the right of Reagan that actually would have um, rejected that way of thinking, we may have had serious conflict. And if we had someone to the left of Reagan, you would have had the the old boomers um, being more frustrated than they were. So in a lot of ways, while Reagan was a failure, to some extent, if we're just thinking about the social cohesion, of our country, he prevented us from a, a serious conflict during that time. But the conflict inevitably we, we see today in society in real time, and it probably culminated right around 2016. And that's something I've personally thought about because I think I've spoken to you this offline as well, where I'm at an impasse at the moment if I want to still hold on to a lot of like, you know, libertarian ethics and theories. And how do I balance that with the fact of like cultural, you know, things being conquered almost and taken over where it's almost like this passive, you know, non-aggression is being stepped on by people who are like rolling over and saying like, okay, but this is new age of liberalism is going to crush it. What would you generally say to other right-wing libertarians in the sense that 
what would you prescribe for them? Like, should they hold on to that or should they evolve in a sense or move on with a lot of their views? They need to move on and start touching grass. All of the libertarian theory does not matter when you have no power. The side that wants to be left alone will always lose to the side that uses power and wants to crush its enemies. Like this is just simple politics 101. It sounds really dark, but it's normal. That's how things work. It's the essence of politics at its core. It's not supposed to be something moral or immoral. And when libertarians just think that they can take a neutral approach to virtually everything in the public sphere, they shoot themselves in the back. Um, when you're looking at society just overall as a whole, they're not interested in these esoteric ideas. Many of them are very valid. You know, Rothbard, when he talks about, you know, the what the state is, the essence of the modern day state, I completely agree. And we certainly should try to remove that from our lives because it is inherently immoral, inherently unjust. But at the same time, when we're talking about the role of culture in particular, libertarians just love ignoring it. I mean, we could just see like over the past week, some of these libertarians were, for example, defending um, the the whole Satanist thing in the public sphere. Um, sphere. But it's just like, this is ridiculous. This just shows that we've um, degraded so much as a society. And when you don't have people that, for example, are anti-left the way they are um, doing anything about it, it really presents serious problems. So while it's true that the state is an issue, while it's true that taxes are a problem, while it's true that money is a problem, when you're not approaching it from a cultural perspective, none of this stuff matters. Cultural matters to people. Identity matters to people. And when we're dealing with the conflict in where um, pretty much one world is governed by a certain perspective, which, you know, some people would describe as a worldview, and the other world is governed by, like, reality, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you know, one side has to win. And I certainly want to be on the side that is governed by reality and push back against all this. And if libertarians don't, then they either need to touch grass and wake up or just simply stop talking about politics. Would you consider that to be a very Machiavellian approach out of curiosity? Yes, but there is a Machiavellian case for libertarianism, which is why so many libertarians started moving on so many issues, at least during the the 90s in particular, the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, Rothbard's an example of this. Um, you know, uh, he was very much influenced by someone else who, uh, if you ever have the time, you should read one because he's controversial and pretty much any right any book that's written by a right winger that's controversial is a must read and his name is samuel francis and he wrote this well it was really a collection of essays called beautiful losers about the failure of american conservatism but then he wrote a second book about leviathan and its enemies and that book was pretty rothbardian in many ways um but rothbard started moving the needle in particular on things like culture which is why some of his um darker writings in the 90s were structured the way they were where he was talking about things like unleash the cops and you know take back the streets and you know saying that he doesn't really care where the bums go and whatnot so uh culture is important and if you're not someone who's of the paleo libertarian ilk you're not really someone who's willing to do what must be done in order to fix all the issues we're ha we have in society right now same thing with hoppa as well but that's given okay sounds good Okay, so we just finished talking about The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. And now we're going to be going over to our third and final book. It is Cultural Revolution by Christopher Rufo. And this book is interesting to me, and I've heard many things about it, but I'd like to learn more. Because I may be adding this on my reading list as well. So 
Could you give the audience an overview or introduction to Cultural Revolution for those who may not be familiar? Okay. Yeah, and I would say that in terms of books that were released um, from this year, 2023, this is probably the most significant book if you're trying to figure out the issues with modern American culture and the vast majority of the social problems that we're dealing with. Um, I believe earlier uh, in this interview, we were I mentioned how um, there were a lot of writers that were very much inspired by Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. And, you know, over time, you know, you've asked me, you know, well, who is, you know, has anyone prescribed, you know, anything to deal with, you know, all these issues or problems? I think Rufo basically explains why education is so bad, um, who are the players, how this is working, and the danger better than anyone, mainly because he presents it in real time, um, policies that were implemented, and, you know, the, the inevitable strategy of the left overall as a whole. Um, Alan Bloom certainly didn't do that. He just pointed out we were stupid. And when it comes to Christopher Caldwell, it's just the the issue with the age of entitlement is fundamentally that with the Civil Rights Act of 64, when it creates diversity hires and whatnot, and all of a sudden these people are now going back to you know work for higher education, they're just going to force feed the same nonsense to the masses. But in terms of Christopher Caldwell's book, he's basically telling us right now that the bureaucracy, what many people, what we all know is DEI, what the new left is doing ultimately is to influence the, the education of this country in a way that prevents us from ever valuing tradition, religion, um, you know, the the philosophy of individualism or liberty to some extent, um, any idea that would have come from, you know, the classical way of looking at things, the scholastics, uh, you know, the, the beliefs of our founders or the beliefs of, you know, early political philo- political philosophers in the, the 19th century. It prevents all of this because the left is fundamentally woke, Marxist, communist, socialist, progressive, secularist, atheist that hate everything about this country and want to destroy it from within. I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm just dealing with a conspiracy theory, but no, in real time, this is actually what's occurring given how they're trying to educate us. So in a lot of ways, that's just a central thesis. And then ultimately like, you know, how do we deal with this at the end of the day? All right. And for along that, I'm trying to think of how I want to pose this question. What would you say is the main critique that he has in characterizing the cultural revolution and its impact on various institutions. Wait, uh, can you repeat the question real quick? Yeah, no problem. What do you say, more along the lines of a central theme, does Rufo characterize the cultural revolution and its impact on various institutions? Uh, the central theme is basically that um, the United States effectively had like a, a long state commitment to like the, the concept of like separation of church and state. And the main reason why is because, like, when you're going back and you're looking at um, during the time of the founding of the country or pre the founding, you know, Europe was pretty much in chaos with all the religious wars that it was dealing with. So naturally, you would think that, you know, religion was the fundamental issue with societies and civilizations. So you had to separate the two. You ultimately had to have different realms. And you could delegate this issue or this problem to private citizens and private institutions. And you could fundamentally make, you know, the public institutions neutral. And at the same time, with all of this, you can have some kind of, you know, 
common um, moral consensus that would exist and we would be okay. And it seemed to work for a while, but at the same time, um, clearly when you're looking at where we are today, like it, it just doesn't work anymore. And back then we had, you know, three presuppositions that we could, you know, look to, to prevent, you know, the disorder in society, which is the first, which is just the traditional stereotypical, well, we believe in limited government. So if the state's not really powerful, then we don't have to worry about anything. And if you add this on top to a robust society, pretty much everyone will be able to leave each other alone and not really worry about, you know, infecting everyone with whatever nonsense that they actually believe when more goods are being produced and you have a better culture, everything works. So, you know, this is kind of in a lot of ways synonymous to libertarianism, but not so much. But then the third thing is that we're just going to have, like I said before, the moral consensus, which is based on Christendom in a lot of ways, like Western ethics and Western culture. But these conditions, I mean, collapsed and um, or the presuppositions were basically led to being irrelevant ultimately at the end of the day. And that's pretty much what the book is based on, ultimately, that because all of this happened and the the left comes in and takes charge, uh, you're now seeing a a 100 year transition from where we were um, in the, the 19th century to where we are today. And I want to get more. You mentioned critical race theory and wokeness, and you hear this word or definition be so interchangeable where it's almost like everyone has a different version of like what is woke or what is critical race theory. I know a notorious figure who does this is Eric Dyson, especially in his, dare I say, horrible novel, um, White Fragility, which... I would not recommend reading unless you want to torture yourself or to get into the mind of a leftist. But in what sense would you say that Rufo specifically talks about critical race theory wokeness? How does he define it and what critique does he have of these concepts? Well, I'm, I'm unfor, I don't actually remember specifically what his definition was again, but you, you certainly are right that everyone has their own definition, but I think two points that are pretty much clear, which is number one, um, when something's woke, it's, it's pretty much common sense and it's blatant and you can see it. But number two, it's pretty much that we we live in a um, in a society where there's certain groups in society that feel as if they don't belong in the society. They're not included overall. They're not included within the society. So ultimately, like to be woke means that you're trying your best to equalize the playing field while at the same time cater to their identity, their culture, their background, um, while at the same time trying to subvert um, the, the the culture that existed in the past, because the culture that existed in the past was not inclusive. Wokeism is basically synonymous with inclusivity, ultimately. But the, the, inter- the interesting thing about that is it's only inclusive for um, people that, you know, bow to the altar of liberalism, bow to the altar of secularism. And, you know, this is, this is interesting because um, there's the, uh, the, the French phrase where when, when you translate it into English, it's no enemies to the left. When they're really talking about inclusivity, they're really just talking about the inclusivity on their side. If you're to the, to the right of them, you just can't, you just can't um, be allowed to, to flourish in our society. We're going to treat you like a second-class citizen, very much like how, those in the past were so to be woke pretty much means to be to basically impose the the regime that existed on the on the rights for over 100 years in their views 
on the the right and the left now um becomes the the dominant ruling class overall that's pretty much what wokeism means and if that's the definition you say or explanation of wokeism how does that correlate to critical race theory what's the distinction here so what is critical race theory then well it's effectively the the theory that allows for all of this to occur which is pretty much that you know there's there's things like intersectionality the the essence of race is um attached to morality and um the the historical the 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 history of uh, certain groups in society and how they were basically oppressed where ultimately you have like all these different systems of oppression and when you're looking at uh the the ancient regime um it was basically designed to prevent people that come from different backgrounds from being able to be successful so we need a new way to criticize um all of the institutions that had existed in the past that were all built off of the west and to you know create new institutions that would be designed to advance the interests of third world countries or people that are descendants of um i mean people that that they can trace their ancestry back to third world countries again like the, the one of the interesting things about like both when you're talking about like woke or crt is that the definitions themselves don't really matter it's really the impact of these things so you can define it however you want but if you're not getting the impact straight then it really doesn't matter but both of them are basically built off of the the notion that uh the traditional way of looking at things does not matter and we should question all the prejudices we had in the past and one of those things in particular was just simply the role of race. Race was basically redefined. It wasn't just simply something biological. It was something that dealt with the essence of who someone was. And that was attached to morality. So even when we're talking about, for example, uh, the nature of like someone, the left all of a sudden reconstructed that. So now ontology does not have like um, any neutrality. Now it's something that's moral. And that's where the left was really trying to go with everything. So now ultimately... I mean, I hate to use the word like reverse racism, but that's pretty much what ended up happening, if that makes sense. Okay, and I've heard this said before, but I want to get clarification. Is it true that critical race theory does have elements and origins in Marxist teaching and thought? Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest answer is just, yeah. I mean, when you, you're going back and you're looking at some of the biggest proponents of it, like Herbert Marcuse, Angela Davis, um, there were two others in particular, Derek Bell, Paulo Freire. I mean, all these people were pretty much radically influenced by, you know, Marxism just overall as a whole. But, you know, when we're talking about Marxism, everyone's really talking about, you know, Marx in particular. But uh, when you take into consideration leftism and, you know, progressivism, uh, communism, et cetera, you also have to factor in Hegel as well. So many of these people were very much um, Hegelian in, um, in nature. And that's really who um, is to blame for, you know, the vast majority of this. It's, it's not really Marx because the economic system itself wasn't really something that um, you could really see um, permeate uh, the West, just given the fact that, I mean, the system itself is just an objective failure. But another thing is that whenever you have, you know, big companies, big corporations, um, telling them to basically downsize or basically... Um, be controlled by uh you know uh the public institutions that's just a no you need to figure out a way to uh get entrepreneurs and to get people on the board uh get directors to get managers to um get on board with all of this so the to to go back to the, the the definition itself like in a lot of ways there's this new um universality that exists and a universal class now emerged and it was um a mixture of 
uh, certain like white progressives with, you know, uh, different ethnic groups and, uh, you know, different protected, new protect, newly protected classes like, you know, the LGBTQ community and whatnot. Thank you. Rousseau often presents case studies to illustrate his points. Can you discuss any specific case studies that stood out to you? Um, which what specific like kind of case studies? Um, are you talking about like, for example, like certain things that happened? Um, that just showed like how crazy these people were, or are you talking about something particular dealing with like academia? I would or... say both. So what comes to mind is why I think about Berkeley, and this was a few years ago when Ben Shapiro was speaking, and it was almost like riots and destructions at UC Berkeley to get him to stop speaking. And I was curious at all because I know Rufo touches on the elements of cancel culture, but that's going to be a question later. Would you say he had any interesting studies or discussions on historical things of this nature? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the best comes from, like, Angela Davis, mainly because, like, um, excuse my language, but she's basically just batshit crazy. Um, she was a revolutionary to the core in the sense of that she was perfectly willing to use violence, very much like how the French were during the French Revolution, to get what she wanted. And she was so batshit crazy that even people that she was influenced by Someone like Marcusa in particular, they did not want to do this. They didn't want to kill people. Um, well, at least to, at least to some extent, you know. Uh, but in the case of uh, Davis, I mean, she was the one that popularized the whole like kill the pigs rhetoric. And um, when you're looking at, for example, uh, post the Civil Rights Act, you're seeing like this these new revolutionary groups emerge and whatnot, in particular like the Panthers, and they were perfectly willing to, like I said before, perfectly willing to use violence to get what they wanted. So Angela Davis was literally someone where she was, you know, trying to shoot cops. Like if you're, if you're that crazy to the point where you're literally waging war against institutions, like literally, then um, this clearly presents a serious issue or a serious problem. But because people have common sense, like when you have armed um, combatants, they're going to assume that this person's like a terrorist or a de facto terrorist. And they're going to um, not accept you know, your values or your views, and you now have to pivot um, how you're going to influence the minds of the masses if it can't come by force. So revolutions can pretty much, like we both know, come in two ways. They can come naturally the way the American Revolution did, or they can come very destructively, and that's what the intention of the Panthers were. So while many of these people were radically influenced by someone like Hegel or Marcusa, and these are brilliant minds, like make no mistake about it, these people were very intelligent um the the proponents of these ideas they they hated the west so much that they wanted to burn loot and destroy it to the ground and it wasn't just simply like stealing from the wealthy and then giving it back to you know the masses it was more so no i want to hang the wealthy and become the new people in power and that's that was to some extent the story of black liberation there certainly were some valid elements you know when you're looking at for example you know, the Nation of Islam, they certainly promoted black liberation to some extent, but they were never violent. They always said to themselves, like, look, if you're going to be violent with me, I will be violent with you. But when it comes to Davis, she was just like, no, I want to be violent and I want to shoot, kill, destroy and do all of these things. And she's literally not in jail right now. And she's a millionaire and she can still give speeches on college campuses and get claps by all of these people with pink hair and whatnot. It's ridiculous. That reminds me very much, and going back to academia, but even K-12, through where I feel a lot of history, especially surrounding the civil rights era, is very, I'd say, whitewashed. And 
not in the sense that leftists would say it, but in the sense that, hey, there was a lot of things under the cover that weren't really addressed. Like, I don't consider figures like Martin Luther King Jr. to be a hero for the extent that he was pushing very much socialism that does not get talked about at all, almost. And in a way that for the Black Panthers, like, in academia, or even in, like, high school, I remember in 10th grade, they're saying the Black Panthers were this cool revolutionary group, and what they do is that they would keep the police in check by standing around just holding their guns, and that's it. And I remember in my free time researching more and finding out that the Black Panthers would actually abduct people that they feel were spies in their groups. And there was one instance where they actually abducted an autistic high schooler who they thought was like a journalist or a spy on them. And they ended up killing him by tying him to a chair in a basement and getting a bowl of scalding hot boiling water and tossing it on him again and again and again to he eventually just pass out and die from burns and like, you know, severe burning of his skin and pain. And later afterwards, a lot of these people were let go because of they couldn't have enough evidence or affiliation on them when it was clearly at their location, at their headquarters, where they abducted a teenager, basically. And because he didn't answer his questions, they just started burning him to death of, like, scolding water. And none of that really gets talked about in, like, classes because American liberalism has to force this, like, notion that, okay, we were struggling a bit with racism, but here comes this guy like Martin Luther King, and then it all just poof went away, everything was great. When that's not really historically what went down, we're seeing this today, unfortunately, in academia. Like, you brought up perfectly the people who are saying, like, you know, I want to kill cops, but you see hypocrisy where they're like, yeah, all cops are bastards. And then events like January 6th happen where they're screaming up and down, where the police, where the institution, you know, we need the cops now to, like, shut this down, where it's almost rules for thee, but not for me. Yeah, it definitely is rules for thee, but not for me. Um, it goes back to... um you know, what I mentioned before, which is that there's just fundamentally no enemies to the left. And this was harder for um, intellectuals and some people that were in power in the past to accept. But as power expanded into the hands of the left, they were more willing to, you know, abide by this. So in modern times, if, for example, someone who's a minority ends up, you know, committing a violent crime, ultimately, you're not going to see, um, you know, that person slander the same way. For example, they were someone who was white or maybe someone who was a minority and very right wing so that's certainly the truth um as for the the, the civil rights revolution um since a lot of like a lot of the a lot of the what goes on in this book is just based on this um when you're looking at for example mlk in particular you definitely you know brought up a lot about how he was a socialist in particular um a lot of people don't even know the fact that um he was certainly someone that said that you know if we don't get our way we may have to use other means but he was um, uh, he wasn't really willing to mention that frequently. And it, it makes sense because at that time, you know, many people, they they weren't willing to, um, you know, abide by the values that, you know, he abided by. And if you're looking at public approval from 1964 to like 1980, Reagan really wasn't I mean, not Reagan. Um, MLK really wasn't that popular. Um, there were many people that felt as if um, the CRA was acceptable to some extent but many people they didn't like the way it was you know implemented and the the negative effects 20 20 years later and you know i i bet that like if you're looking at for example someone like malcolm x versus mlk if there was like a serious study done back then they probably would have said that um 
Malcolm was probably a bit crazier, but he was more tolerable because he was pretty well spoken. Um, he basically said, look, if you if you attack us, we'll just attack you. But he was very much just focusing on his own community and whatnot. Meanwhile, MLK was trying to radically change the system in a way that many people were unwilling to accept, in particular Northerners, because it wasn't Northerners that, you know, saw the discrimination. So um, to, to attach this to, you know, what was going on later on with the, the Black revolutions that emerged, many of them, they certainly do trace their roots back to Malcolm X. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'd make the argument that Malcolm X was more influential on the Black community than MLK, um, especially when you're looking at, for example, hip hop. I mean, the obvious example is just simply like Tupac. If you're reading his lyrics in particular, they're a lot closer to Malcolm than they are Martin. If Malcolm X was a rapper, he probably would have been Tupac and um to be a little dark, he probably would have had the untimely death um, that, you know, unfortunately Tupac had, um, you know, rest in peace to both since I'm, I'm still a big fan of both. But um, you could you could see this in, in, in the culture just in general. So the Panthers just literally, I believe it was four or five years later after after um, Malcolm was shot, they pretty much start to flourish. Um, you see other black militant groups like um, the Black Gorilla family and whatnot. And uh, these were sort of the earliest gangs and some of them had like decent intentions, you know, they were trying to feed their community. And it's the reason as to why sometimes even today, many people don't and many people in their cities don't necessarily criticize um, gangs the way others do, but eventually became something where they were so radicalized that, um, you know, everyone was warring with each other while also warring with um, what we would describe as the regime. And it, it got very controversial because liberalism is something that once you take a dose of it, it's impossible to once you take a dose of it and you are voluntarily willing to take the dose while also submitting to the ideology. It's it's nearly impossible for you to pick yourself up out of it or bring yourself back to the right or bring yourself back to moderation. There were there were a couple of people in particular that um, uh that were eventually able to make the shift there was one prominent um panther I, I can't remember his name right now but he was actually someone who was very woke and then he eventually became a born-again christian and a republican and he was giving certain speeches and whatnot at certain conservative conventions but in general it, it's difficult to get out of the ideology and what you then see is that liberals even started beefing with other liberals um huey newton was an example of this where many panthers are very upset that he started talking about um, you know, intersectionality, or he was one of the, you know, the earliest proponents of things like that. He started talking about the, the plight of Palestine at a time when many black people were basically just saying, dude, you, you really just need to talk about what's going on in the United States. So it became something where it went from being this, this pro X group, um, view to now we have to basically include everyone. And that is how, um, the left was able to unite and create the universal class. Um, Fred Hampton's another prominent um, Panther. He died when he was about 20 years old. Um, I, I will say, in, in his case, even though he was a revolutionary, it was pretty clear that like the CIA and the FBI did some pretty sketchy things um, in terms of like spying, and then he ultimately died. And there was controversy about whether or not he had a firearm. But you know, back then it was pretty much easy when you were a government agent to get off a crime and whatnot. But he was one of he started the Rainbow Coalition where you saw different ethnic groups unite. He was able to get, you know, these people who were living in Appalachia, white Southern Appalachians who were populist and felt as if um, the system was working against them to ally with him. And these are people who they, to be blunt, probably didn't really like black people back in the day, along with Puerto Ricans and others. 
And you see how this now translates into what the left is doing in modern times, where pretty much every group in society is against the right. And basically to be right means to be white. So, you know, that that's part of the reason as to why many people feel as if, you know, the cultural battle we're dealing with is pretty much a, a pro-white versus anti-white um, uh, war. Would you say that groups and you just said, you know, right wing is like, you know, to be pro-white is to be pro-white. Sorry, to to be pro white to be pro right. In a sense, do you feel like I know Tucker Carlson spoke on this actually recently where he said, Hey, eventually we're gonna lead to a point where it's just gonna devolve into like identitarianism where everyone's like getting into their camps and we're gonna reach a boiling point where there's like no return. How much does Rufo touch on this necessarily, especially in regards to political landscape? So that is certainly something that many people on the right that are fans of Rufo wished he talked about because many people that are to the right of Rufo don't actually believe in um, the colorblind society that Rufo is trying to promote. Not because like, well, some of them are probably racist, but the vast majority of them, you know, I guess I would describe them as just being like racially conscious to some extent. Although many of them, like, I think take it a little too far. But Rufo doesn't really seem to be someone who um, is really trying to make this like a the whole, okay, well, the left's main intention is to be anti-white. He does certainly point out that many of these um, liberal intellectuals at that time were basically design, designing a system that was going to, you know, um, crumble the, the, the white um, regime that had existed in the past. And, you know, an example of this is like Derek Bell, where, you know, he was a racial pessimist and he really didn't like white people at all. He um, basically resented them. You know, there, there's like a, this running quote where he was saying, like, I live to harass white people just ultimately at the end of the day. And what what happens there is pretty like with him, you kind of get the emergence of the, the diversity and equity inclusion, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a second. But um, to go back to Rufo. Um, his goal with this wasn't really to talk about the 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 hatred of white people, although he was pointing out that they really did say some really scary things towards white people. It was really just to simply um, like point out that, hey, like, look, if we want to be a, um, a meritocracy, we, we have to change. You know, affirmative action is not good. DEI isn't a good thing. These woke tards are in power and we have to change things. And that pissed off a lot of people. I certainly thought he was someone that was going to buy into that view. Um, and I was a little disappointed when he didn't, mainly because I wanted to see how he would argue in comparison to many people that are just simply like writers and they haven't written a book. But and then f to see, you know, what footnotes he would provide for things like this. But he unfortunately didn't. So that would be the big biggest criticism of his book. OK, and we're going to go on to the next subject where you actually brought up, you know, diversity, equity and all of this fun stuff. What is your general thoughts on this and how does that align with Rufo and his writing? Okay, so before I do that, there are a couple of things that I think I need to address beforehand. So I will probably be um, talking for a little bit. And then if you need me to stop and then ask questions, you can obviously do that. But um, to to go back a little bit to what Caldwell was talking about um, when he was talking about the significance of the Civil Rights Act of 64. One thing I didn't bring up earlier, which I want to do now, is talking about maybe potentially how this this new constitution emerged because without this constitution, we don't get DEI. And Caldwell himself doesn't really give the a good 
explanation for this or to be blunt like he really doesn't give a reason at all but he does point to two things which i think are incredibly important which many people who are libertarian love talking about which is the significance of fdr and what with fdr we kind of know that the with the, the executive branch dramatically grows in power i remember even in high school like i could find a moderate you know u.s history teacher that would even point out that you know any expansion of the executive branch was pretty much unconstitutional that would have been the view for most um lawyers most judges back then most politicians but then it eventually became something where we normalized it and with this at the same time with the executive branch you see the the rise of the modern bureaucracy and what happens now is that since judges are not enforcing the the original constitution and over time judges are becoming more liberal we see this with the warren court and whatnot along with the bureaucracy you see two groups now all of a sudden writing laws and it weakens the ability for congress to do anything if congress is not submitting to the will of the the leviathan ultimately so when i was bringing up how like we had three things to kind of keep us together in check and to flourish as a society one was limited government two was the robust society and then three was basically the the basic christian morality that we had you pretty much saw like the destruction of all of this occur um you know in real time during the 20th century and you know the first way that this occurs is just simply because the the right just um unapologetically starts moving to the left they're shifting the overton window um rufo talks about how there was like a hundred and a 100 year campaign to sort of reduce the size of government but to be blunt i don't think rufo um is willing to just admit that the right was just not right wing they were insufficiently right wing they went from being reactionaries, hardcore conservatives, to basically being moderate liberals or centrists and whatnot. So that's why the you know the 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 ability to reduce the size of government failed. So you can now have institutions like DEI emerge. And with civil society being in free fall for a decade and the social fabric decaying, you it leaves a um it leaves a void because the left is unwilling to accept the moral consensus. You and I both would admit that liberals in general tend to be pretty atheistic secular they're not um christian they don't abide by traditional values they're now they now have their own agenda they have their own vision for how we move forward and this was their opportunity um and, and to go back to the the whole notion of you know the the separation of church and state because liberalism is secular and because secularism is not a, a religion um technically there was an opportunity for them to go into power and with this now um secularism emerges within the bureaucracy but it's 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 it is its own religion we know this to be true and at the time when this was all culminating in the 60s um no one could really think that this was a good thing back then because the government was never intended to be this um invasive in our lives and at the same time mandating who we have to associate with mandating all these hires that we see in modern times so the left effectively had to do something which they basically get from mao zedong which is that um with mao there was this long march through china but with the left there was pretty much a long march through institutions and people like angela davis in particular they were radically influenced by mao zedong many of these leftists in particular they even like um went to china to see what was going on during that time so they could see how to strategize and you know do what they wanted at this time and that was how they were able to capture the bureaucracy over time, where they realized that the road to power wasn't through the democratic process. It was through um, uh, the ex it was through basically getting hired, being a part of the bureaucracy, 
while, you know, focusing on higher education in particular and, you know, trickling these ideas down to the masses while at the same time expanding um, their their power in higher education through creating new departments. The humanities stop really being the humanities. That creates the rise in gender studies. That creates the rise in, you know, for example, things like African-American studies. And because of two things in particular, we get to where we are. The first is that um, with the right, the right uh, decided, like I said before, to seed ground. They did this because it goes back to that Ronald Reagan quote, which is that government is the problem, not the solution. We can't use the government to advance our own agenda. Um, when you're looking at it in modern times in particular, many people would say that, well, you know, if we do it, then they're going to do it. And we can't just do the same thing that they're doing because we have to be principled. You seed the ground that way and it normalizes the secular culture. And this effectively becomes, you know, the ideology of the state. And at the same time, because like I said before, they adhere to this, this notion of no enemies to the left. Our enemy is literally the right. If you're someone who's conservative, ultimately, you now have to moderate your views or, or um, adopt the philosophy of the left. And what you see with that is the, the, the closing of the mind. And effectively, because we can't use the power of the state, they can. So how does this all culminate within DEI? DEI was basically an extension of affirmative action in many ways. Like I said before, it was pretty difficult for them to get their way when it came to invading people's private lives. But in in terms of like the public sector in particular, it was pretty easy since, you know, all these people were members of the bureaucracy. So DEI basically became the fulfillment of affirmative action. And, you know, an, an interesting thing about it with DEI is when you're looking at, um, like, for example, if you were to consider like the Latin um, way of saying um, this, if you were to consider the word day, um, Rufo points out that, well, in Latin day means God. So when, when we're talking about um, when we're talking about, for example, the left being secular and how they're able to do you know, everything that they're doing right now under the the um, the banner of secularism, because secularism isn't a religion. What they're actually doing is creating a newly religious society. And DEI is basically the the priest of this. It's um, it's, you know. Um, to be blunt, like literally the Melchizedek of the left and, you know, diversity itself, um, when you're looking at just simply the abbreviation D, what diversity really meant is that we need people that come from different backgrounds, but at the same time, they're not diverse in terms of their ideas. When it comes to equity, um, it was effectively to tip the scales for the groups that are part of the new, the newly universal class. So to be blunt, it's pretty much in the eyes of a lot of these people, um, anyone who's left is someone who we're going to basically tip the scales for. And anyone who's on the right or anyone who's white, we're going to punish. And to be um, the inclusion aspect is basically it's based on this idea of repressive tolerance or like liberating tolerance. And this concept was developed by, you know, Herbert Marcuse, where we need a system that systematically excludes you know, ideas that are not inclusive. So anything that allows you to discriminate or associate if you're a private individual was something that um, we had to reject. We needed something where we could help to promote egalitarianism to the core. So the inclusive aspect, the inclusion, um, the I, it was fundamentally anti-right-wing. 
So again, like I said before, leftists are rewarded with protection. And at the same time, people that are right wing, they can't get certain jobs, which is why many people that we know at this point, no matter how intelligent they are, even if they have a PhD and some of the uh, social sciences, they can never work or um, they can never work at some of these higher um, institutions and whatnot. And when, you know, when, like I said, um, actually, I didn't mention this before, but if we're looking at higher education just overall as a whole. No one really cares what someone at some, you know, low tier university says, unfortunately, even if they have a Ph.D. We care what people are saying at the Ivies, the um, public Ivies, some of these southern schools like Vanderbilt or Duke University, the Western colleges like Caltech, um, Stanford University. You have schools like MIT. We care what people that go to those institutions are saying. And the leftists are the ones that are pretty much including everyone that is left wing to be employed by these schools. And no matter no matter their credentials, it's a non um, um, it's basically the antithesis of a meritocracy. You know, the best example of this is if you're someone who's supposed to be a professor at Harvard University, you would expect that if they have a Ph.D. and they're an academic, they'll like have like 50 peer reviewed articles. Um, literally, the president right now who's um, being accused of plagiarizing. Well, now it's been proven to be true. She had about like four um, and that was it. And she was able to. Uh, she was able to basically get the job and the way that we, the, the way that they were able to do this without any backlash from so many people is it goes back to the whole notion of original sin at the end of the day, where, you know, our original sin was that we were discriminating against certain ethnic groups and they were going to guilt and shame people for not addressing the quote unquote injustices that we saw in the past. So if now you have a, a new moral compass and everyone's pretty much embracing it, well, then how do you fix this? And the goal of DEI is basically to just pump a bunch of liberal babies um, that are going to infect, that are going to basically run our society. And if you're someone who's right wing and you just simply want to be left alone, there's really nothing you can do unless if you have some institutional power or you have counter institutions that can prevent this from occurring. Yeah, and that goes back to what you were saying as well in regards to the I just want to be left alone crowd that's not going to get us anywhere. It's going to make the problem worse. And historically, too, I'd say ever since FDR, it's kind of the analogy of the frog in the pot of water, where over time is gradually being turned up more and more and more until the right, if you will, is literally getting boiled alive. And we don't even know it yet because he's just been accumulated to the water. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And um, when we're looking at the right in particular as of right now, because many people may say, well, the right did actually try to push back um, in many instances. No, it's absolutely not true. Um, like I said before, there, there are no enemies to the left. If you're left wing at this point, when the right starts shifting, the, shifting um, leftward and they start adopting the rhetoric of the left in many ways, which is where the whole famous quote from Michael Malice um, comes, where, which is that conservatism is just progressivism driving the speed limit. Um, what eventually happens is that the, the right starts to exclude right wingers as well. And neoconservatives started doing this, you know, during the 80s. Um, you know, I brought up how, you know, the Reagan revolution in a lot of ways didn't do what it was in, didn't do what it intended to do. Um, from the start of it, it was already subverted by certain neoconservatives or certain people that were already paying lip service to the left, where someone like Emmy Bradford, who was supposed to be um, employed by the Reagan administration, was pretty much condemned. And he, um, someone else ended up getting the job. And you see this, you know, you saw this over time in the right, like, um, 
you know, famous one, Dinesh D'Souza. Um, no matter what he's saying right now, when it came in, when it was in the 90s in particular, he was certainly trying to prevent certain right wingers from maintaining their status. Um, he was he was the reason as to why Samuel Francis is basically just a forgotten man on the right, unless if you're someone who you you pay very close attention to a lot of these, you know, more hardcore right wingers. And he was going around saying this guy was racist. He was anti-Semitic and all these other things when that really wasn't that really wasn't who he was. And so, you, you again, you see this in modern times today where you're seeing online or, you know, with some politician. A quick question along the lines okay. of this. Does this sort of fall into the line of no enemies on the right? Would you more or less agree with that philosophy or would you reject that? You mean like someone like Dinesh D'Souza, um, like ostracizing people or I mean, I, I know what no enemies on the right means, but. Are you are you asking me like is that the reason as to why some right wingers are pushing back now, the way they are, or are you talking about something else? Yes, along those lines, like you know, is that the reason some white right wingers are pushing back? Because I know, especially for us um, Catholics in our sphere, and you know me as well, I butt heads with Nick Fuentes and his crew a lot because I don't like their message or vision of the church, and that's why at times I'm trying to find a balance between do we really have no enemies on the right. Or are there some people we should ostracize or kick out? And for D'Souza, I felt like it was uncalled for. But for other cases, I'm wondering, like, when do us as right-wingers draw the line between they're our in-group and they're our enemy? So, I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt. I, I subscribe to some extent, at least, to the, the no enemies on the right mentality, mainly because, I mean, our numbers are just really small. And I do think that the, the main issues that we have on the right with legitimate right-wingers and reactionaries are issues that we certainly can resolve internally while instead of trying to, you know, adopt the forceful rhetoric of the left where we're basically going to call everyone racist or, you know, homophobes and, you know, all these other things. But um, that is definitely why so many people in particular are, are beginning to subscribe to this because they see the left do it and then they see right-wingers punishing right-wingers and it's just like, well, how do we do anything at this point? Like, who are our friends? I mean, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the left is very much Machiavellian. Um, they're very much um, a belief. They, they very much subscribe to the notion that um, there is a friend-enemy distinction that exists and their enemy is the, the right. But on our hand, you know, our enemy is just literally like, well, look, if you disagree with me or if you're inconsistent or if you're a cultural degenerate, then you know, I don't really want you to be a part of my movement. But at the same time, many of these people actually have actually have legitimate concerns. Now, in your case, when you're talking about someone who you're bumping heads with, um, he's certainly a questionable individual. But I will say that I think on the right, if we focus too much on people like that, we create an environment in which we're not focusing on our real enemy. Because at the end of the day, um, it's not, you know, people like the guy you mentioned who are the ones that are trying to punish, you know, you and I, it's the left in particular. So that's really where it comes from. It's, it's not that, you know, we don't have legitimate grievances. It's that, that there's always a bigger grievance that's out there and that's what's supposed to unite there's us. A bigger fish to fry, basically, as in we have bigger things to worry about. And that's something I could understand and see, especially with, I guess what I mean you would disagree on is I'm a lot more optimistic for the right, as in I see us growing as a movement. Like we already dominate what is like, you know, meme culture we dominate a lot of like in these circles but the only issue is how do you promote this to like the normie or like the layman or modern society is what's a struggle especially like you we've been saying this entire podcast 
how heavily indoctrinated and brought up into liberalism it is where like you said liberalism is a god and those who get punished are those who do not bow before the altar well i'm not really i'll be honest i'm not really a fan of like the meme culture mainly because i do think if we do have to take into consideration um possible problems on the right there are certainly some sketchy memes if you know what i mean and there definitely are things that we have to be cautious about but i i think the the big thing here is that um at the end of the day the, the left was they, they they know how to win and they've been winning for a hundred years and they're united with a couple of key principles you know number one they're anti-christian number two they're anti-west which is pretty much the same as being anti-christian but they'll um uh, consider it something differently in the sense of that, like to be Western also means to be that, you know, you're a proponent of capitalism. Number three, they're um, anti anything that supports tradition. And number four, they are um, very much interested in uniting any group that feels as if there are systems of oppression that are preventing people um, from uh, having upward mobility in society. But on the right, you know, what are the central things that unite us? Is it that just simply we want to own the left? Is it that we just, you know, have memes that we can use? Uh, religion is certainly something that, you know, can it, it's certainly the uniting, you know, factor in our lives in many ways. But in the political realm, you know, we do have uh, issues there. You know, obviously, you know, Protestants versus Catholics versus Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. So there have to be other things that effectively unite us. And I think if we're people who feel as if our enemy is, you know, the left, our enemy is the state, our enemy is the regime, our enemy is secularism, then those are things that we can culminate um, behind and we'll be able to win. I'm more pessimistic than you, to be blunt, mainly because when you're looking at some of the people nowadays that are starting to even adopt some of the rhetoric we have, like Charlie Kirk or even like Janesh D'Souza, I remember like where they were in the past and they weren't they didn't they didn't like ha have the values they have right now. So is it that they're lying to us or are they actually, you know, waking up? Um, but, you know, there are things that I think that allow for the unite to un the right to unite in a more um, fluid way, because when you go back and you look at the left, one of the things that Christopher Rufo points out in particular is that there were certain divides that existed within the left back then that prevented them from amassing um, power and being able to have a united front against the united states regime um back then and it was that when you're looking at for example someone like angela davis and many people that were influenced by black liberation and black revolutionary movements they they adhere to the values of progressivism mainly because they hated white people and they hated capitalism but the the hatred for white people because you could see the oppression in real times in their eyes was enough to the point where they didn't want to be associated with many people that were white. And, you know, some of these other white intellectuals, they were just like, well, what the heck are we going to do? We, we need to do something in order to unite. Look, I'm your friend here. And, you know, some of these people were saying, like, look, you're my enemy. And I think in modern times, when you're looking at us, uh, sometimes it kind of seems that way. So, again, I think we need a uniting. We need something that allows us to be pretty fluid. And since both of since the both of us are libertarian, I think, or at least at one point were libertarian, um, and dived in those circles, we certainly know that there was a a mixture or a fusion um, between many libertarians and paleoconservatives, where you had people like you know Murray Rothbard starting to understand the importance of the culture war, 
And at the same time, you had people like Pat Buchanan in particular starting to understand the, da- the danger of the nature of, of the regime and the state and how, you know, state power is really in a lot of ways at the hands of the things that we see. I think we can kind of see that fusion in modern times today where um, you have like, you know, many libertarians that are more open minded talking about the role of things like war, immigration, you know, mon- monetary policy, the, the, the essence of the state. Um, mixing themselves with um, people that are talking about the concern for, uh, you know, Western civilization, which is why many people that um, are libertarian are starting to understand the significance of Christianity and the significance of a, of a of a social sphere holding everything together, because the social sphere is what allows for, you know, liberty and for, um, you know, knowledge and wisdom to flourish. And without that, you won't you won't have freedom. So and there, there's certainly room for yeah, I would argue that's a large split, too, you see in libertarian circles, because I know right now a lot of the big debates in them, because I am still have contacts with a lot of those guys, is that you have the Ayn Randian objectivists who are taking a very strict atheist approach to everything, and very hard on legality and, like, nothing at all in morality, and then you have what I call, like, the libertarian Catholic pipeline, where there's a lot of individuals like myself, like you, who come to the church and realize, you know, libertarianism isn't enough. And it's us trying to search for solutions where you have the objectivist saying, like, are you truly on our side? And then us vice versa saying, you know, are we considering you on our side as well? And that's something yeah, I that's find very really interesting. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, the one thing I will say about that is that since, I mean, many people may disagree, but when it comes to libertarianism, it's not like a one-dimensional philosophy. It's really, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's really just a legal system that's based on property rights, which um, the basic, uh, you know, premise there I, I i fundamentally accept but in a lot of ways uh you can be right-wing and be libertarian and you can be left-wing and be a lulbert um or a libertarian if you want to call yourself one still so i think in the case of people that tend to be like atheistic and secular like a lot of times what you see with a lot of these libertarians is that they're actually left-wing and and they in no way they're in, they in no way will ever accept um support um they they never will accept the right being in power. So if, if that's the case, then we can just consider them leftists. I really think at the end of the day, the real distinction that we have to make in politics is to be right wing or to be left wing, to be reactionary or to be progressive. And when you're looking at someone like Hoppe, he makes it pretty clear, like every conservative should be libertarian, every libertarian should be conservative. And I think that just con- um, fundamentally cul- um, culminates into you being right wing, where we believe in hierarchies, traditions, a natural order that exists and meritocracy. And on the left, they believe in um, they believe in inclusion, egalitarianism, secularism, and um, this the equity, just ultimately, and um, diversity and multiculturalism. While on the right, again, you know, we we believe in like one identity, one nation, you know, one people, and that should be the divide. So, just at the end of the day, just chop it up to that rather than like focusing on like the the internal struggles with libertarians. Just call some of them right wing and some of them left wing. That's what I do. Sounds good. Um, so this has been a pleasure going on this long tangent, but I think we should go back a little bit to some closing thoughts in regards to Rufo and his book, Cultural Revolution. So some of my last questions I'm going to ask you is, does Rousseau, well, you already answered that, my apologies. I'm trying to think of how I want to word this. In your opinion, are there any alternate approaches to address the challenges presented in his book at all? 
So Rufo pointed out that, you know, one of the things that we need to do at this point is just to get DEI, which is just common sense. But um, this is tricky because on, on the one hand, you have some people that are basically just saying the right should just seize all of these institutions and, you know, voila, there we have it. But on the other hand, Rufo is more so talking about how the only way that we can get, you know, our society to work again is to actually focus on meritocracy. So we should certainly cut back on DEI, but we should certainly staff, you know, academia with right wingers. So, you know, one thing that I'm sure you're familiar with is that many right wingers in particular, they have begun to tell people don't go to college. That makes no sense at all when you really think about it, because like we said before, or I said before, college is at the center or universities are at the center of our civilization. And if right-wingers are not going to institutions, then the, the left is just going to continuously pump these crazy left-wing babies. And, you know, to just a quick side note, it's funny how they, like, we're, we're, we're talking about, for example, the changes of demographics and the population decline. The population of the left is certainly not declining. They're pumping babies after babies after babies. They just love it. And, you know, we, we, we're just having no right-wing kids, which is just unfortunate. But... If we if we don't do anything about universities on that front and we don't do anything to gut DEI, we just simply, you know, invade these institutions or we just invade DEI, then we haven't really solved the problem. It doesn't go back to, you know, the, the essence or the, uh, the, the moral problem that we're dealing with when it comes to, you know, DEI and affirmative action and what's going on. I think another thing in particular that he stresses is that we need a we need counter institutions. Um, when you're looking at, for example, what's going on in Florida, um, I'm not sure if you're like a fan of DeSantis or what's going on in Florida, but one thing that DeSantis did was that he put Christopher Rufo on the board of directors for uh, this new, co- the new College of Florida. I believe that's the name. And they're the, I think the intended goal is pretty much to just make it the Hillsdale of the South or the Hillsdale of Florida. And Hillsdale College is one of these small private colleges that still at least to some extent adheres to a, a classically liberal or a classical liberal education. So doing something like that's good. In Texas, you have the University of Austin. I believe there's about $100 million that was being pumped into that school in particular, where they're now trying to you know, revive the classics, maybe have a better way to approach economics and things like that. So if, if we encourage right-wingers to go to colleges like that, and these right-wingers are getting trained um, very well, or they're being educated very well, not trained, but educated very well, that's, that's the right strategy. That's the right approach. Because at the end of the day, intellectuals, um, they, they are the ruling class or they're part of the ruling class. And they drive us to believe many of the things that we believe today. And again, when we're talking about public intellectuals in particular, if these intellectuals are bad, and they are bad as of right now, you know, how do we replace the bad with the good? Do we just you know, um, do we just do nothing about it or do we just do the same exact thing that they're doing? No, we want good things. So I, I like what Rufo is doing. And, you know, he mentions this in the book in particular, and that's the best strategy um, moving forward, I think, as of right now. So to nullify DEI, gut it, and to, you know, have counter institutions that we can use to educate and provide knowledge to um, a new right that's certainly yearning for this. And there certainly are other institutions that I think do do this pretty well. You know, the Mises Institute is a prime example of this. They're always going to get a shout out just because there's like over a thousand books that you can just download for free. And, you know, it's not just simply economics. You can do culture, the nature of the state, even some things about religion in particular, history, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have other um, publications like Chronicles Magazine where, you know, they write a lot. 
And, you know, homeschooling as well is something that's very good. Um, a lot of people are providing homeschool curriculums and whatnot. And of course, you and I both have mutual friends where they're providing a classical education at a, a very cheap price and whatnot. So these are things that, um, you know, Rufo's talking about where, uh, you know, if we do these things, uh, we'll be able to, you know, fix some of the problems that we're dealing with as of right now. All right. Sounds good. I've had a great pleasure having you on my podcast, and this has been a very enjoyable conversation. And we did go a bit over time, but honestly, I don't care. I've enjoyed this, and I'm sure our viewers and listeners are going to enjoy it as well. So I want to first off thank you again for being on my show, and thank you for such knowledge and insight you provided. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. This certainly was fun. Uh, is Do we still have time for me to say, like, one thing um, in particular to yeah, kind of, like, combine the three different yeah, I was going to go over that. So I want you to share whatever final thoughts you have, and then we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Okay, so final thoughts on the three books. For the, the Too Long Didn't Read to pe- didn't read for People, um, we started off with the, the Closing of the Mind by Alan Bloom, where pretty much um, he's basically pointing out that we're stupid. And then we continued on to the middle with The Age of Entitlement and the Significance of the Civil Rights Act of 64. And the, the reason why this is important is just simply because that's what started the affirmative action political correctness and allowed for people that were, were not, would not have gotten the jobs that they did in the bureaucracy and um, at certain institutions to be in power. And what you see as a result is, occurs in America's cultural revolution by Christopher Rufo, which is that you see the explosion of DEI, the explosion of diversity hires, the explosion of wokeism, the rise of secularism being the new religion. And that's fundamentally why higher education is so important. So when you see the ground to the left, um, you just allow the Overton window to shift. And the only way that we can push back is to be firm to point out that there is something that's true, that's beautiful, that's the just, and we're ordered to all of that at the end of the day, that there was a form of liberal education that we received in the past that caused us to be smarter and more intelligent. And if you're someone that's worried about how stupid people are on TV or how dumb your professor is or how dumb your teacher was in K through 12, it's important for you to read books like this and to get insights from each in particular and to you know combine them in order to realize like what's going on because we we have a long road ahead of us. I mean, the left, um, in order for them to win, they took 100 years and they went through a long march. We may need to do the exact same thing, but luckily because bad ideas um, eventually implode, we're already starting to see this and people push back. Thank you. And again, one more time, thank you again for being on our podcast. And I'd like to close out with a quote I always enjoy when, especially talking about these discussions. When you cut out a man's tongue, you prove him not to be a liar, but that you fear what he has to say. And I feel like that could encapsulate very well this entire discussion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good quote. All right. Well, one more time, this has been Rumson Crusoe joining us for Record Radio Season 2. And our next episode is going to be a roundtable discussion over the problem of evil. We're going to have six different guests on the show, all from different backgrounds, denominations, and faiths and having a more philosophical discussion on the problem of evil. So tune in for that one, and after that we'll have a season finale part two in regards to that, and that'll be all for season two. One more time, this is Solar Requiem, and thank you again for tuning in to Requiem Radio.